Canadian public-private partnership business. Charles has gained considerable in-depth global knowledge and experience of private finance for the infrastructure in the UK, Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. And as you can see, uh, you're starting to find out why we get a lot of interest from, from other places in the world in our public-private partnership projects. It's because they've done so much over there. His involvement in U.S. public-private partnership includes lenders, technical advisors to the Chicago Skyway, Indiana Toll Road, Kohannes Parkway, Northwest Parkway acquisitions, and is a sponsor, technical advisor on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and FARC II Mexico projects. In addition, he has provided the procurement and transition advice to TxDOT, TTC 35, Corridor, State Highway 130, State Highway 121, toll roads, as well as to the New Jersey Department of Transportation for monetization of the state assets. To his immediate, or to your left, to his, your right, his left, is Simon Santiago. He's with the partner, he's a partner with Nossaman LLP. Uh, Simon Santiago has worked exclusively in the field of construction law and has both significant transactional and litigation experience. He represents public sector clients using innovative financing, delivery, and procurement methods to develop large-scale transportation infrastructure projects. Mr. Santiago's construction litigation experience and successful negotiations of favorable multi-million dollar settlements for private clients contributes to his demonstrated ability to develop strategies and contracts that reduce the potential risk for his public sector. He's a graduate of the Washington College of Law at American University. Uh, and to his immediate left and your right is Mike Parker, serves as the managing director of Jeffrey Parker and Associates, a leading independent advisor on finance, business planning, and public-private partnerships for the public infrastructure. The firm celebrated its 26th anniversary last year. Mr. Parker is a recognized expert on the growing US P3 market. His recent experience includes working on projects involved more than $5 billion of potential new infrastructure, including advising the Florida Department of Transportation on structuring and procuring of the Port of Miami Tunnel and the I-595 express lanes, as well as assisting Caltrans, California Transportation Commission, City of Miami, North Carolina Turnpike Authority, and Virginia Department of Transportation, among others. Mr. Parker has over 12 years' experience. He holds a BA in English from the University of Pennsylvania and a dual major MBA in finance and management from the Wharton School of Business. All right, now that we've got through that, uh, let's move on. What I'm gonna do here is just, just go through a couple of slides to just try to bring everybody up to the same basis that we can have a discussion. <coughs> definition. The definition that's generally used for public-private partnerships is a contractual agreement between public and private partners which allows more private sector participation than is traditional. And as you see, that could cover a lot of things. And so I put up what I call my alphabet soup uh, construction here to try to give you some idea of what we're talking about. That is the generally accepted definition around the world. Uh, when I first uh, came into working for Federal Highway Administration, I thought that was a little loose definition. Um, and what we're gonna talk about today is more concessionaire type public-private partnerships, and that's what I uh, thought public-private partnerships were. Now, alphabet soup construction, as I call it here, uh, the first one I put is design, bid, and build. That's what, you're that's what you're used to seeing. That's what we see every day out there, and probably that's the traditional way of procurement on these type projects. And then design, build, 
is just going a little bit further into the design and build of a project and we consider that a public private partnership also and then there's design build finance we're starting to see more and more of these around the country where the contractors actually providing the the funds for a period of time of f dot was working on one i assume you're moving ahead on it it would the contract was going to take about three years and they were going to carry the financing on it for about six years and we're seeing that uh, i was up in michigan they were talking about that the other day and we're going to see more of that i think and then there's design build operate maintain finance which is what we're really here going to lean on today and we call that a concession agreement it's where the uh, they design, build, operate, and maintain, and they also finance it, and, they, and you put it out as a procurement and bid it in. The concession, the term definition of that is a long-term lease of public facilities to a private party, the concessionaire. And, and I like to put this in there because, you know, Lou Dobbs on his program on CNN, when he first came out a, about a year ago, had a little something to say about that. He was talking about all the infrastructure that was being sold in the United States. I don't think one of those projects has been sold. They've all been done on a lease, and, and that's similar to just how you rent a house or your long-term lease on a house. And think about that. The owner uh, retains control based on the documentation that he has. States are turning to PPPs, and uh, we mentioned some in, in the bios here, but examples of recent ones uh, that I've been involved in are the Capital Beltway Hotline Project in Virginia, um, outside of Alexandria area, where it's extremely congested. The Port of Miami Tunnel, uh, which uh, Michael has, has worked on. Uh, the Pocasana Parkway uh, in Virginia is another one. And then the Texas State Highway 121. I wanted to throw that in, and Michael's actually our uh, Get my names mixed up here. <laughs> Charles has actually worked on that one. And I put it in here because that, that is an interesting project, but it ended up as what I call a public public partnership, meaning that the, uh, the toll authority within the Dallas-Fort Worth area ended up uh, actually is doing that project. About 80% of the county, the country's current highway mega projects, greater than 500 million, involve tolling of some type. And 60% of, of these projects uh, involve PPPs to give you some idea. Benefits of increased private participation in transportation projects. Just throw up a few ideas here, but there's many, many more than this. This is not an all-inclusive list by any means, but acceleration of the project startup and more certainty on project completion timelines. This is essential when you come to tolling a project and you're basing your financing on those toll revenues. Freeing up of scarce state and federal resources for competing priorities. Everyone, I don't think there's a state in here that doesn't have a problem on competing priorities. Um, increased investment in transportation assets where demand exceeds supply. Um, most of the big cities have this problem and, and Florida has more than its share. Uh, shifting of cost overrun risk from state and local governments to the private sector. Uh, we're going to talk about this in risk transfer here today, but this is an essential point in considering public-private partnerships. Potential, I, I, I don't like to just paint the positive side, and, and I was trying to think about the negative side. Is there some limitations to public-private partnership? And I think there is. And I think that when we're analyzing this, we need to look at both sides, and I'm sure our panel will have something to say about that today. But the failure to anticipate future issues on these projects, these are long-term concession agreements. As you've probably read in the newspaper, anywhere from 30 to 50 to 75 years, depending on the project. Uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen over that long period of time. 
We might not even be driving cars in 99 years like the Chicago Skyway was then. Who knows? Maybe we'll be flying around in helicopters like the Jetsons or something. Overpricing of risk. How do you price these things? And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today is that transfer of risk and, and how you look at that. I thought I'd just list a few of the transportation project risks that might be considered to transfer. And I'm not going to go through them, but you can, you can read them up here. And I'm going to leave this up while we're going through our discussion. And, and you might think about those in re relation to what the panel is, uh, is saying. Now, what I would like to do is to lead off with uh, some questions here. And like I said, if you have questions, hold your hand up, and we'll get, we'll get them answered up here by the experts. Some countries, such as the UK, Australia, Spain, do a value for money analysis, so they have something to compare against when receiving proposals. How are you seeing this handled? And I would turn to the panel and, and give them the option of which one of you would like to respond to that. Let's, uh, I'll start off with a definition. Okay. Um, value for money is, is it really the definition is a, an optimum combination of whole life costs and quality. And, and basically, it's not the cheapest solution. Um, a, a good value for money is not necessarily affordable. And affordable project is not necessarily good value for money. And um, as we're bringing in the sort of the UK side of it, um, the value for money is, is assessed in the UK and a lot of Europe on the basis of what is known as a public sector comparator. And this brings into effect some of the issues related to risk, in fact. Because in establishing the public sector comparator, you have to value retained risk as well as transferred risk. And this is added to the equation of costing the public sector comparator. You also have um, the, the raw data and from an engineering point of view, um, the, the raw PSC is something that uh, in the US we don't have consistency of measurement. In Europe and in Britain, there, there's been uh, in, in uh, common use um, a standard method of measurement. And it means that it's, based, it's an activity-based costing and pricing of contracts. And this has been used for some time now, well over 10 years. And it means that there is a database, there is an ability to benchmark costs. And I think this is one of the major problems that we have here in the US, that it's very difficult to have benchmark costs. The, the indirect and direct costs uh, are different from state to state. Some states include um, the, co the general costs of the Department of Transportation. But um, in general, those costs are ignored. And you only look at the outsourcing costs for, for bringing in consultants, for bringing in um, uh, identified contractors for the operation and maintenance of a roadway. Um, certainly in, in the UK, it, it is identified within an organization and authority. And some of the costs of that organization authority are put towards projects. And so um, there, there's a lot of raw data to be collected. A, we've got to go a lot further in respect of um, establishing what the true value of a contract is undertaken in the public sector. 
and then and only then can we um, come to some sort of conclusion as to whether you're getting value from money going to the private sector. I'll hand over to Mike. He's obviously... <laughs> actually, before I do, I'm going to actually step out of my panelist role and be a member of the audience because maybe we're assuming a little too much regarding what value for money analysis is and why it's done. Um, my understanding is that the value for money analysis is part of deciding whether to pursue a project through a public-private partnership. Yes. Um, and uh, to, to build on, on Simon's point a little bit about just stepping back and also uh, to pick up where, where Charles was, um, value for money analysis, first of all, in Florida is now part of the public-private partnership legislation. It's required, uh, see Marcia nodding here to make sure I'm, I'm phrasing it correctly, but it's required before a project moves forward as a P3 here in Florida. So it's not just, uh, it's not just something which is abroad. Uh, in the UK, there is a, a specific manual, in fact, that's available for doing a value for money analysis. But as Simon said, it is a tool to begin deciding the, the analytic process to decide whether or not to pursue a P3. And it, uh, value, f the, there's sort of, it's used in two different, the, the phrase itself is used in two different ways. One way is, is it good value for money? Is it worth spending a little bit of extra to get something? I think that's a lot of what Charles was using it as. In the specific context of the analysis, what we're talking about is putting a base case public-private partnership model and on the financial side and as well as on the qualitative side and putting that alongside the traditional public sector delivery model, some sort of benchmark. And this isn't sort of the fantasy of how could I build it if I did it in a public sector way and we had the money now. It's get what is my next best alternative. If I don't use private financing and don't use a P3, what is the next best public alternative and to weigh them. And to begin with, both of these sides are going to be built on assumptions. And so if you have good benchmark data, that's what Charles was referring to, your assumptions become a lot more valid. But the value for money analysis you do at the, offset, at the onset of a project should be followed up by an analysis after the fact, by post-mortem, uh, as the project moves forward and once, once bids received and, and later on. Uh, essentially, at its most simple form, part of why this is necessary is when we looked at the alphabet soup that, that Jim was referring to, in the, the significant change is that there's a letter F in the DBFOM. There is finance. And it's not just in the case of design build finance, you're really just, uh, it's, your, it's essentially you're getting a long time to pay the receivable or to pay, to, to pay the payable. It's very different than in the case of, a, of a, a DBFOM where you have equity at risk and you have lenders who are at risk for the delivery of the project. In a public sector model, usually, not in all cases, but usually the debt is going to be recourse to the public sector. So whether or not the project opens on time, whether or not, uh, if it's not a, a pure toll financing, but whether or not the, the people show up on the road, the public sector will owe the payments on those muni bonds. On a private sector finance project, the lenders are taking the risk and the equity is taking the risk that the project is going to be delivered. And they're only going to start earning their return once the project opens and insofar as it performs as expected. And so that the private sector, it costs more for them to borrow and their equity has a cost, usually around 13, 12 to 14 percent. 
And so really, to make a long story short, the value for money analysis is about stepping back and saying, we're paying extra for this financing, we're paying extra for the lending costs, we're paying extra for the equity. What are we getting for it? Is the, public, is the private sector accepting more risk? Do we have qualitative reasons in terms of acceleration of the project, et cetera? And we're laying out all those cash flows for the next 30 years, trying to think about the life cycle cost risk also, and then bringing them back to the present, discounting them back, and comparing the results. And you'll never be perfect, but you want to understand is what assumption is going to drive this? Are we close to them being balanced? Is there a reason to do one or the other? Or when would a public-private partnership for our state be not useful, or when would it be useful? And so it's a tool in that decision-making process for before you move forward with a project to have a real basis for why you did it, a publicly defensible one based on some analysis, and an understanding that you can go back to later on as your program matures. I know that's a long monologue, but well, I hope it's helpful. And, Mike, I'm not a financial consultant, so maybe this is my view as a lawyer and perhaps a layperson on the financial side, but – you know, part of the value for money analysis, isn't there even more of an economic threshold question? Regardless of what project, de regardless of what project delivery you use, um, whether design, bid, build, design, build, or the concession model, you have to determine whether you should pursue the project at all, and that's performing a cost-benefit analysis. Because um, basically, P3s isn't the lipstick you can put on a pig. If it's going to be a, a bad project, slapping the label of P3 isn't necessarily going to make it a good project. And so you really have that threshold question of, you know, whether from an economic standpoint, will it, how will it affect congestion? Will it improve safety? Um, also, what's the impact on the environment? And only then, I think, will you then consider whether you pursue the project through, the, through traditional financing or through a public-private partnership. Yes, and, and the value for money analysis that, that Jim referred to is once you've addressed that threshold question, is this a project? And I think that is a problem that some, some P3s suffer from now. Is It's not necessarily a project, and we have some projects in this country that have been sort of the, the ugly ducklings for a while that, that have, have been in that, that case. And you'll see in other countries, particularly ones that have a very mature approach to this value for money analysis, that the high-priority projects oftentimes are P3s because they – and have found that they're delivered more frequently on time, on budget. So in, in Vancouver right now, in the preparation for the Olympics, you'll look across projects. The ones that are funded, that are high priority, then a value for money analysis is done. Say, so should we do this? What's the best way to, to meet our objectives? And it goes forward. But definitely the threshold question of whether or not it should be a project should be addressed first. All right. <clears throat> From the pu public sector, when considering the transfer of risk to the private sector, which risks are generally not good candidates for transfer and why? Well, I, I'll, I guess since Charles took the first shot, then I'll, I'll, I'll take the first shot on this particular question. First of all, I think we have to step back in terms of, you know, uh, what influences the risk allocation. And I'll use the word risk allocation because you can transfer risk or share risk, so, and risk allocation is a, a more generic term. I think you have to look at the, uh, the scope of the, pro of the uh, party's responsibilities. Um, I think in, if you use P3s, there's an inherent transfer of risk just because you're bundling all of the project elements and having one party perform that. And so that one party, the concessionaire or the developer, 
assuming the risk related to design defects, construction defects, and performance issues in the operation and maintenance phase. Uh, and then, you know, the common principle regarding, regardless of what project delivery method you use, is you typically transfer the risk to the party who is best able to manage and mitigate <clears throat> that particular risk. And so, again, when you look at P3s, because you're bundling the services and having one entity perform it, um, you do have the concessionaire assuming uh, more risks because they're uh, theoretically able to make and have the flexibility to make the desi design de decisions and the construction decisions to mitigate uh, the design and construction risks. And also, even if a particular risk is not within a particular party's control, um, sometimes you can have the private sector, to the extent they can efficiently price that risk by putting in a contingency in there, you have to look at it. And in order for the private sector to price that risk, you have to define that risk, put it in a box. Otherwise, you know, the, the approach of pricing a risk uh, won't work uh, because you'll have contingencies which will not uh, make the project financially uh, feasible. Um, and so, you know, given those factors, typically what we see, uh, at least the public sector retaining in terms of risks, is uh, right away uh, acquisition, uh, just because of their unique powers for condemnation, and, and some some states have quick take rights. Uh, environmental uh, risks, uh, the NEPA process. I think as I said in, in the prior presentation, the global climate change, and they said that the NEPA proce process can take, uh, what, 60 months uh, in, in some respects. And, you know, obviously you want to hammer out that particular risk or, or put that risk element to the side uh, and uh, on the side of the public sector uh, when you're uh, dealing with risk allocation. Um, and also um, uh, some subject to uh, a lot of debate goes on to responsibility related to contaminated materials, specifically pre-existing uh, contaminated materials. Uh, that's typically a risk uh, that, the, uh, that the private sector um, wants to put a box around uh, and not have it open-ended. Yeah, I think, I think that I'll, I'll move uh, along with that, um, uh, you know, pre-existing environmental uh, issues that it, it is, there's one other um, subject that comes out of that is, is uh, handling um, contaminated waste and uh, removing it from a particular site on a greenfield site means that um, the private sector takes on the role of a generator and in that respect, he becomes responsible for um, uh, the, the state of, of that contaminated material for the rest of its life. And th this is one of the points that, that uh, becomes quite a, um, a large negotiating uh, issue, along with um, archaeological finds. And um, working on the private sector side, we found that that has become a, a very big problem. Um, in Texas, it was solved to some extent by limiting the liability um, because it was uninsurable um, for pre-existing conditions and removal of contaminated material. And so there was a cap on the liability of the private sector. And this, this was introduced solely um, to, because of this um, uh, current move to get the most upfront payment on a particular PPP deal, it means that um, the, the revenue or, or 
it, it is a revenue share. Um, the upfront payment is a revenue share. <laughs> I'm just looking to the financial advisor because I'm not a financial advisor. Um, the upfront payment is a revenue share. So um, certainly um, if, if you can mitigate some of that risk of pre-existing, then it, it will increase that revenue share up front. Right. No, I think that there's, there is, and what Charles is starting to get to, is there is a risk. I can't quite see everything that's up there, but is traffic on there? Mm-hmm. Um, and well, if it's not, it's a big risk in many projects. And um, I think what, just to build on what Simon was saying, uh, when you're talking about financing a project or somebody's looking at lending money to a project or investing in it, they're interested in, they will price the risks that they can understand or control or put a box around in some fashion or that they can find someone else to take the risk for, the subcontractors doing the design and construction or an insurance company if you can insure certain risks. But people who are lending to these projects, their only source for that project's repayment, for the repayment of that loan, is the revenue from that project. So for them, they need to get comfortable or they're going to have a sense that they're not holding a a subprime loan in that project. Uh, Most of these projects will be rated uh, triple B minus or is sort of usually minimum investment grade is the goal. And so there is a a limit to the amount of of unstructured risks or risks that are, are not manageable that the private sector can take. If you have a very complex construction project, then traffic risk may not be as easily transferred onto that project on top of it. There become too many unknowns. And so I think one thing that, that, that we don't often think about as a risk transfer is traffic. And there's really an option as to whether or not to transfer that. In Florida on 595 project in Fort Lauderdale, the toll revenue, both the risk for the demand level as well as the the, the the main, I'm sorry, receiving the revenue is all going to go to the state. So the state will take the risk whether or not someone shows up. It's going to pay an availability payment to the concessionaire. We'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, but for those who are less familiar, an availability payment is essentially a take-or-pay commitment where the state says, if you provide roadway that meets these safety and uh, quality conditions, we will pay you to pro rata for that. Uh, and if you don't, the road's not available and you won't get paid. Now, whether or not people choose to drive on it, in the case of 595, is a risk that the state's taking. And that, in many cases, that type of demand risk on a greenfield project in particular, and sometimes on uh, hot lanes, can be very difficult for the private sector to manage. Some private sector entities really like that risk, uh, or they have a portfolio of it but they charge a lot for it. And so it is something that if you have the flexibility to decide whether or not you keep it or you transfer it, you should look at it like any other risk. Jim, it seems like we covered a decent amount of ground, so should we uh, ask whether the audience has any follow-up questions related to value for money analysis or uh, the risk allocation issues? You're getting ready to go to happy hour. I think so. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I think we have a question. Oh, where? Okay, can you stand up?
question? Sure. The, qu the question is, do we see different, do they see different types of, of uh, differences in numbers in, in the revenue studies on these projects? I think that's pretty much summing up what you're asking. Um, Michael? Well, I'll just start off with uh, how, how we address traffic. Um, uh, basically, we look at confidence levels, and we do a risk analysis, which is a little bit more um, than, than a, a, a lot of other companies do. And when we look at about 47 assumptions, um, we, we have a, a great database. I was talking about uh, earlier about benchmarking. And we've got projects um, that have been good projects, that have been bad projects. And we can benchmark against those risks against those projects. And each one of those risks, you look at it um, under a, a, you know, a, a normal distribution curve, and you can establish um, the confidence level of, of actually achieving those traffic uh, figures for a particular assumption. You then combine all of those assumptions together, and you have what is known as a, a, a sort of a 95% confidence level and a 50% confidence level. And by the 50% confidence level, we mean that, um, you know, 50% of the, the traffic is, is going to be above that particular level. There's a 50% chance that it'll be above that level. The 95% confidence, there's a 95% chance that it'll be above that. So in those terms, the 95% level is really conservative and the 50% is, is quite an aggressive approach to traffic forecasting. And what, what we find is that um, the private sector, when it goes out to get the finance, the lenders come back and they choose an 80% line. So they have an 80% line. And it, it, I'll, I'll hand this over to the finance in a moment because not no, that I'm the financial advisor, but, 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 but the, there is a situation, therefore, that um, uh, you, know, you, you, you do get um, lenders limiting the amount of money that they will lend. But if uh, a particular um, private sector proposer is proposing to, to win a particular bid competition and he is going very aggressively what it does mean is that he is going to have to put equity at risk to make up the difference because the banks won't lend past 80%. And I think it's time to hand over to Mike now. No, I think this is, this is exactly a good understanding that traffic in general in, in, our, in our country, uh, when we've been looking at municipal finance models, for the most part the goal has been to be conservative. Uh, and to make sure, because municipal finance lenders and states in general don't like to have bonds at default. So we've been taking 90th, 95% confidence intervals. A lot of cases is what the rating agencies are wanting to see uh, and the, the levels of debt, co debt service coverage that come with that. Um, we also probably have seen some excitement about getting projects moving forward. And so a typical result is to see the ramp up on a greenfield project uh, sort of looking back historically at, at past projects, maybe the ramp up an over-aggressive assumption there, and long-term, because uh, the confidence intervals are sort of tight in the early years but widen substantially later on, uh, missing what would might be a, a high demand in the later years. And so uh, I think your, your question, maybe we've, we've over-answered it in some way, but different people have different views of traffic. It is important to remember that in the end, the traffic is what it is. And so um, 
if you feel, uh, you know, I, I find in general that it is not a great proposition to uh, base the, your, your decision of how to procure a project around the idea that the private sector is crazy and is going to lose money and is going to make a bad bet. Uh, they may make a more aggressive bet, but I think in the end, um, if you're doing that because you have no other way to raise the level of financing needed for a project, or say you're a startup turnpike authority and you don't have uh, any source to, to guarantee an availability payment, you have to do some sort of toll revenue pledge because that's your only source of funding. Same thing, this happens in many third world countries, which is why we see a lot of toll concessions there. They don't have a budget to guarantee the, the, the cost, so the private sector comes and takes the traffic risk. But you don't always need to do that, and you will pay um, a couple of percentage points more potentially in borrowing cost, and well, not, in bar not so much in borrowing, but in equity and overall weighted average cost of capital when you transfer the traffic risk. So. Uh, there, there's a wide range. We could have a, a whole panel, I guess, just about why or when to transfer traffic risk. But suffice to say, um, the understanding what the forecasts mean is a good start. And, and it is noticeable that, that um, in, in those third world countries that do have these problems, the concession term is, is normally limited. It's around about 25, 35 years. Any other questions? <clears throat> I will say that I have seen as many as four revenue studies on a project, and they're all a little bit different for different good reasons. Let me see if I can phase the question so everybody can hear. His question is basically with the, with the rising gas prices um, and the change in, in driving and so on, how does that affect the elasticity on the revenue studies that we're talking about? Is that correct? What do you guys want to respond to that? <laughs> I, I, I think if, if you talk to concessionaires, they see it as a short-term issue that um, – uh, you know, there may be a sort of downturn in, in revenue at this time, but um, they do remain quite buoyant as long as the concession term is long enough. And um, th this is one of the major issues with regards to revenue share. Um, the, it, it's really that if, if there is a revenue share and this sort of situation does arrive, there should be a share in the, um, the downturn as well as the up upside as well as the downside. So um, I, I, th I think this is a, a very difficult pill to swallow in a lot of instances. Everybody talks about super profits from um, various different projects, but um, you are now noticing that, that there is a risk to the private sector, um, and nobody knows how long that risk is going to persist. And certainly um, our revenue forecasts uh, are accurate, we believe, up to about five years, maybe ten years. But anything past ten years, the only way of, of predicting it is to take ten-year slices into the future. And um, there is a great deal of uncertainty there. So um, 
it is a problem for the concessionaires. But they, a lot of them are still quite buoyant and believe they're in it for the long term. And so they'll stay. Right. And I guess going back to the basics again, the issues related to the traffic revenue studies and the risk associated with that, uh, that is unique to uh, a real toll uh, concession, um, you know, as opposed to the availability payment mechanism where the concessionaire does not take on traffic risks. And so that is an alternative to deal with, uh, you know, the elasticity and the, uh, the downturn in vehicle miles traveled. You know, to the extent that is a real concern, uh, you know, there are other uh, payment mechanisms out there to deal with that particular issue. Obviously, when we have a real toll concession, uh, you know, there's a, a lesser degree of control on the, public, on the part of the public authority in terms of uh, toll setting. Um, and determining the toll rates. And, there, and so those are policy issues that need to be considered in choosing um, which way you want to go in terms of your, your concession model. Yeah, to build on one thing that Charles said, uh, we're seeing a model that appears to be a, uh, being more efficient financially speaking, less, uh, less cost of capital uh, and a pretty effective risk transfer still for uh, toll-based deals and there's been some closings now in these in the in the global financial market uh, in Chile and Portugal and several other places uh, that involve uh, a term length that varies. So in some states, uh, there's definitely not an interest in having a 75-year term, which is essentially out there to give the lenders and the equity comfort, even though they're they're not valuing it specifically, that they can be aggressive early on. They have enough time to make it up if it doesn't work. So having an end early if things go great, but having it go longer if things aren't going so well. Uh, and then coupling that on projects where it's kind of iffy as to whether or not they could pay for themselves, uh, providing a minimum revenue guarantee. And by doing these two things, what you actually find, say, compared to a subsidy payment that has no minimum revenue guarantee, um, you often find that less of the minimum revenue guarantee is needed that in the end because you've gotten fairly efficient structure. People are able, don't price the risk because they know they have the protection, but in the end, maybe even at the 60th confidence interval, you still have a 6 in 10 chance that things are going to be better than that, and so in the end you don't need it. Um, but it is a, a different way of looking at the structures, and I think that sort of bears out that we're at a very early stage here in the U.S., uh, and there's a lot of experimentation going on in each state, and I think it's very valuable. And there's, there, we're probably not in the position for many of these projects to start even drawing lessons learned, but it's certain that even uh, the, you know, those of us opining up here will probably be learning the lessons that you all are experiencing in, in your states as you move forward with projects too. And, and it's not to say that Europe and the rest of the world is, is uh, you know, the expert at this because they're still learning lessons. It's... Uh, the, the, there's one uh, method of uh, limiting uh, super profits, which is on the basis of IRR, and IRR could be measured in so many different ways, and it can be like return on equity, return on on capital. But but um, the second Dartford Tunnel in London um, had a, a limitation whereby when the contract reached the IRR, it was a 25-year, 20-year, 25-year contract. When it reached the IRR limit then the contract would be terminated. Well, in that particular instance, it was terminated after 10 years because the return on IRR came a lot earlier. However, that was seen as a bad thing because the intention was that um, the operation and maintenance of that tunnel 
would remain in the private sector hands and be off the uh, public sector hands for a lot longer period. And so, again, lessons learned. Thank you. <clears throat> Any other questions out there right now? All right. Oh, another one right here. She's going to hinge up my head. In Europe and in other parts of the world, what percentage of the audience? It's not on. Is it on? Okay. Um, in, yeah, it is. In uh, Europe and other parts of the world, what percent of the projects have either underperformed or have been a failure? Of P3 projects? Yeah, of P3 yeah. type projects. And are you referring to what kind of performance are you referring to? Like, you know, whatever the uh, finance level was, whether the uh, investors, they were able to recover their money or they were actually uh, taking losses. There have been some notable failures. Very recently, the the cross uh, cross tunnel, the cross what is it, the the Sydney in Sydney, there's a tunnel that goes across the center of the city that was bankrupt almost the day it opened. Uh, the traffic was about 30 percent of what was predicted because, uh, and that project actually led to them uh, in New South Wales, that province of, of Australia, them. Uh, ceasing projects that had upfront payments on greenfield projects because they felt it was incentivizing the most aggressive toll regime. And in fact, in that case, the, the, the local procuring agency uh, had worked to close local streets to traffic to force you into the tunnel to raise the amount of money that was to be generated from it. And that wasn't politically acceptable. And there's some of the risks. The way it, it, there was a very aggressive approach in general. And so the traffic was not as expected. Um, what we have seen in, in some countries also, and I think this is why the, the variable length term is important concept to, to think about or others, is opportunistic renegotiation in some cases too, where both on the public or private side, uh, there's less of an interest in seeing a project fail. And so here in the U.S. even, we see Pocahontas um, going from being a design, build, operate, maintain, that sort of had a, a quasi-independent uh, finance structure being restructured as a 99-year P3. Um, but there are substantial times when losses are taken. Uh, there are a number of companies, and sometimes the losses are at the contractor level, not at the investor level, and sometimes they're at the investor level. But most of these companies are public, and you can you can look at their returns, and they have, they have ups and downs. Right, and another project that comes to mind in, uh, I guess, Charles Motherland is a, a London Transit. Uh, project that, uh, that experienced failure, on, and it was cured under a P3 uh, type uh, project delivery system. In general, there's been a number of audit studies in the UK and Australia and some other places with long histories, and the finding as far as project delivery is that P3s uh, tend to open on time or early. Uh, I think the, the figure is in 75% of the cases, and in the other 25 in the UK, it was primarily due to owner changes that were, were added and it was still opened within six months of the original schedule. Uh, and I think the track record on the uh, public delivery side was more around 25% with often substantial delays. And I, I, think, I think as well that there's uh, generally accepted um, uh, data sh indicates that there's an 18% 80, saving in uh, private sector um, uh, costing of it because it, it, it's a difficulty that, that we do find in um, actually collecting data here in the U.S. that, that 
Um, in a lot of cases, we don't have our outturn costs. We only have bid costs. And so we don't actually know how much a particular design bid build or a design and build contract actually costs at the end of the day um, because the outturn costs aren't recorded for some reason, just the bid costs. And I guess, again, I'm trying to go back to the basics. Um, I guess why, why do projects tend to be delivered faster under a, a, a P3 model? Uh, is because there's an expedited uh, development schedule. Why is it expedited? Well, particularly for greenfields, is because you have the upfront capital being brought to the table to fund the full project cost, which enables a project that was in the work program to be delivered in 10 years, in, in five years. And so obviously there's a carry-on to that, that that's going to result in, uh, in a reduced cost because, you know, labor materials aren't getting any cheaper. And so to the extent you can deliver the project now, that's obviously going to influence the end cost. The, the, and within a, a specific project, the very simple answer to why projects move, seem to move faster on a P3 uh, towards completion is that whether it's a toll payment or an availability payment that's going to be earned, you don't get it until the project's open if you're the private sector. So that, that is sort of a, a very fundamental change as opposed to normal contracting where you may be paying progress payments along the way. The lenders and the equity investors are very aligned with the, the government in wanting to see the project open quickly. seems to be in the United States we have a number of P3 projects that seem to take forever to get off the ground. What suggestions could you make that might uh, make it more conducive here to make the decision, let's get going? Right, let me take the first shot at that because I, I agree um, that here in the United States there's a lot currently in the procurement cycle. Uh, but not really a lot that are actually putting the, sh uh, the, the, the shovel in the dirt. Um, uh, and part of that is, you know, what makes uh, a P3 successful? Um, you have to have uh, uh, policy and, uh, uh, and political support for the, uh, for the particular project or, or P3 program as a whole. Um, you know, that involves not only a, a, a public champion to an individual, it also uh, requires institutional support to the agency uh, in order to make that P3 program or project successful. Uh, also on the public side, you have to have the users supporting that particular project. And again, that goes back to, you know, why are you pursuing a project? Um, you know, it's to relieve congestion. Obviously, that affects everyone. And so, you know, there's going to be a point where you know, the project, uh, the public may be willing to pay some type of user fee in order to make this uh, project feasible. Um, and so, you know, I think some of the holdups you see in the newspapers and why there's fits and starts, part of that is um, because there are political and policy issues that need to be addressed, addressed up front before you even launch uh, that particular uh, uh, P3 project. And, you know, I can think of other a host of other ones, but basically it's just a learning process. You know, Europe is pretty advanced in terms of uh, delivering P3 projects. 
Here, I, I, even though there's about 40 or so states who have design-build legislation on the table, really design-build is, is uh, you know, uh, still in, in its infancy stage, I would say, for purposes of delivering transportation projects. There's a lot of states such as Florida and Virginia who are using more and more design-build to deliver transportation projects, but really traditionally it's been design-build. And so the, the practices, policies, and procedures just within uh, the transportation uh, department needs to sort of perhaps adapt uh, to the what I call uh, design-build on steroids, which is the concession model. Um, you have design-build, operate, maintain, and you add the, the, back, the black box of finance. You know, it takes people to sort of understand that and to get educated and up to speed, educated and up to speed, educated and up to speed, educated and up to speed.